Back again, another week at the uh, Blue Corner. My name is Dennis. Thank you for joining us. Uh, as I always do at the beginning, I tell people to uh, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Except this week, I will em- emphasize the um, the share. Um, you know, there, there's been a few un- uh, uh, unfortunate events over the the, the past kind of week, and uh, we're going to discuss that today anyway. Um, today's guest I've been trying to get on for a little while. Uh, he's a very bu- busy man. Um, he's a dietitian and works with some of our biggest names when it comes to the uh, world of combat sports here in Australia. Um, he goes by the fight dietitian, uh, Jordan Sutherland. How are you? How have you been? And how's the uh, Sunshine Coast, I guess, or the state of Queensland at least? Yeah, hey Dennis, thanks for having us on. Yeah, it's not too bad. It's not too sunny at the moment. I'm looking outside. It's pretty, uh, pretty gloomy, but it's good. It's been hot, very hot lately. So, good place to be, mate. It's, it's the same here. I, I say like our weather conditions at the moment is like uh, someone really having a, a case of schizophrenia. You know, we we've gone from some really hot <laughs> yeah, days down to storms, back to hot, down to storms. Today I'm wearing a jumper. Yes, I was in a singlet. You know. Um, but listen, uh, just so people know what, what it is that you actually do, do you want to give yourself a little bit of a, a, a rundown of what you do and, and, and I guess on, you know, who you predominantly work with also? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I run a company called The Fight Dietitian. So it's a company I started about two and a half years ago is when I went official with it, but it's kind of been like four, four and a bit years in the making. So it's a, the way I describe it is a, a performance nutrition company that focuses on combat sport athletes. We work a lot with our other athletes team, endurance and everything else, but we really put a lot of focus on combat sport athletes. And I guess um, within TFD, we kind of have two pillars. And the first one is to um, kind of use the principles of performance nutrition to help make combat athletes better athletes, I, I suppose you'd say. And then the second pillar is to kind of use our knowledge of science and use good evidence-based science to to remove the risky practices that are inherently come with a lot of combat athletes making weight. So we've been doing that for about two and a half years and um, yeah, we, we've done pretty well with it. And at the moment, I think our roster, our last count that we had, we probably work with I think 85% of the um, professional mixed martial artists in Australia and New Zealand. So at the moment we've got uh, all of the fighters from city kickboxing currently in the UFC. So Israel Adesanya, Brad Quake Riddell, Dan Hooker, Kaikara French, Shane Young, uh, Carlos Yulberg just got signed over there. Um, and then in Australia, like you said, you're Josh Coolabau, we've got Jamie Malaki, Cal Potter, who just um, retired, Nadia Kasim, um, Taito Avasa, Tyson Pedro, a bunch of guys um, in the Australian New Zealand team, in the Australian New Zealand scene. And then we work with guys from kickboxing, judo, jiu-jitsu, uh, every combat sport you can think of, we work with them. Now, let me ask you... Um with, with the combat sports uh, and, and, and say the, like, look, people that listen to this podcast know I'm not a big fan of, um, of weight cuts in general, um, you know, I could, and it's only because I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, when it's done right, I, I guess it's okay. Um, I would prefer a world where everyone just fights at the weight that they're at because um, I kind of feel like I've said this in the past that, you know, everyone cuts the weight so they, they fight at a level. Now, if we made a law that there wouldn't be weight cuts everyone would kind of be fighting the same people except the weight class up because everyone's doing the kind of harsh weight cuts and i remember back in the day i was involved with somewhere it was just predominantly water cuts um but that was also a time where you know a lot of these fighters were then rehydrating via um a drip um and and they were 
you know, quite quickly able to get that body weight back on. Um, once again, I don't know how safe that was or anything like that. But uh, yeah, uh, not a big fan of weight cuts myself. Um, but the, the, the thing that I guess really gets to me as well is when, when an athlete's uh, health comes under right and 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 i've always said that like with the penalties that they give the 30 percent bonuses or whatever you want to call it from the other fighter i'm i'm kind of like why would you take 30 percent to jeopardize your health you know like i i would prefer that fight to be scrapped that's my opinion i you know and everyone's got one and and everyone's got like different ways of of i guess handling bad weight cuts and missed weight cuts and stuff like that but like when it comes to you like, what are your personal opinions on weight cuts? Is there is there like a limit um, to 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 weight? Like, when they say there's a science behind it, right? Which uh, I guess there are, but it, it, it is it still relatively uh, relatively new. Like, are we still developing new methods? Um, is it you know, uh, as I say, is it still a little trial and error, or is the science in and and there are you know, safe ways of doing these things? Um, yeah, there's a few questions in there, so I'll, I'll work my way through it. I guess in terms of the science, like, is it new? Uh, yes and no. Like, yes, it is new in the, probably in the modern sense of cutting weight, but you got to remember wrestling is a very old sport and over in America they've been studying and they have studies for almost over 100 years in this area. So I guess it's not particularly new. Maybe the application of the science to the sport is probably a bit more new. I think within MMA, especially where you see like penalties with 30% and I think it's really blown up as a more global sport. It's probably new because it's only 25 years old. And I think I always use the example to people like think of rugby union or rugby league players from the eighties and compare them to now in 2020. And, and it's chalk and cheese, right? And the reason that is, is because of the, not only the development of sports science, but the application of that sports science. But I think Within MMA particularly, there's only really been about 25 years of that happening. So we're kind of coming and seeing the application of that science now. And we're seeing these better athletes develop. And with that, we're seeing better weight cutting practices, I suppose. But as a science as a whole, I wouldn't say it's a new thing. It's something we've known about for a long time. And 100 years um, on from that science, we're kind of now just figuring out what those limits are. And I guess to your question of like, is there trial and error and is it safe? Like, yeah, there's always going to be trial and error, but the way that I always think about it is it is a science, like the human body is a science and um, there's certain laws of physiology, there's certain laws of biology that you cannot cannot change and you've got to work within that. And I think that's where a lot of mis misunderstanding and, and miscommunication about this whole process comes because like you alluded to before, when you, those dangerous weight cuts, you saw predominantly water cuts. And it, it, it's like one of the biggest problems in this area is just the whole misunderstanding of what weight cutting is. And I don't particularly like the term weight cutting because weight cutting should be broken up into all these separate phases. But when we say weight cutting, we all think of, okay, sitting in a bath or sauna and doing exactly what you said and sweating water, which really puts out the wrong idea about what weight cutting actually is. In my mind, weight cutting isn't dangerous. Weight cutting is absolutely not dangerous. You can quite easily move 10 to 12% of your body weight. It, it's very well recorded in other literature, say with endurance athletes, there's been world records broken by endurance athletes who have lost up to 10% of their weight during an event and they've broken a world record. So your body can very easily move that weight and put it back on and you can still perform at your peak. The problem when we put it in the context of combat sports is this misinformation and miscommunication about, okay, exactly how do we do that and what that is. 
And people think, okay, when I say you can lose 10% of your body weight, they think, sweet, I'll go into a sauna. And if I'm 70 kilos, I'll lose seven kilos of weight. That's not the case. There's all these different segments that you need to break this up and you need to understand the physiology, the biology of the body and how you can pull that weight and what time frame you can do that and how you do that in the most appropriate way, like you said, to maintain that athlete's safety. See, and, and my thing is, as you alluded to, is that it has been around for a while with the wrestling, right? And 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 I guess for, in once again, I'm not a professional at this. I've just seen the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, and I... I just find as well that with wrestling, even though it's a combat sport, there isn't as much head trauma, right? And so, like, what a wrestler can do on, on you know, a weekly basis and pull some of that water weight out specifically, because you always hear it. People always go, oh, you've got 75% water mass, you know? So there's plenty of water to take out. But my whole thing is, like, you're dehydrating not only your body, but I, I guess your, your brain as well. And... You know, it's, it's a little different if you, your body's a little fatigued and, and, and so forth, or if you're getting punched, kicked, whatever, to the noggin 24 hours later. Um, I mean, I, I guess on that sense, is 24 hours enough to, to rehydrate if you are doing a, 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 I say, a bigger water cut? Like, I'm not talking about when you're taking off, like, the last, you know, 500 grams, or uh, I'm talking, like, some of these guys, as you, or as you said, they take off kilos. Um, you know, it... Is the, is the practice, I guess, safe even in, in the sense of the 24-hour a lot of time uh, to actually jump in the cage or ring uh, the, the following day? Yes, that's a real good question. And that's a big research topic that we're trying to get our heads around right now because at the core of the weight-cutting issue, one big component of that is the dehydration and then the adequate rehydration. And I guess... When you talk to people about this, even like you said earlier, people could do this and even back in the day, they could put an IV in. But just because you put an IV in and you get fluid in your body doesn't necessarily mean that it gets back into the cells where it needs to be. And this kind of comes in, in a very simplistic sense. You can break this up and think of the body as having like three compartments of water. There's lots more, but let's just think of it as like three. And say there's like your, when we sweat, there's obviously sweat on the skin. And then if you go under the skin, there's blood and capillaries and that's where our blood is flowing and then to lose water or sweat from that, we take water out of the blood onto the skin and it perspires out and we cool down. But then if we go back from that, another step, there's another compartment, which we call, let's just say our extracellular space like outside of our cells. And then there's a whole lot of space in between. And then we go inside the cells. Now, when we talk about being inside the cells, that's where all the really important water is. You think of like your brain cells, if we dehydrate, that's when we say, okay, like if you're going to take hits to the noggin, it's really dangerous if we dehydrate inside the cell going into that fight. And you always use the example, say if you've got a cup, put a rock in a cup, shake it up, it's going to bang around, but put a bunch of water in, obviously doesn't bang as much. This is where there's a lot of like conjecture and we're not really sure. And this is where we as a team get our recommendations of never cutting more than 5% fluid weight or body weight and fluid when it comes to that last water cut, which is the very, very, very last part of this weight cutting procedure. So when you get there, and the reason we say 5% is, like I said, when you sweat and you've got that fluid and it goes out to the skin, when you're doing, say, 1% to 2% of your body weight and you're sitting in a bath or hitting pads or doing whatever you do, 1% to 2%, you and I, Dennis, like we do a training session, we'll probably lose that in a training session, right? Because And it's that fluid that's like right at the edge. It's just from your blood. It's going to go there. But then the problem comes and it's like, okay, we've got to do a bit more and say maybe 3 to 4%. We got to go a bit deeper because we don't have that much fluid like right out here 
So we've got to come in from that extracellular space and we push the water out a little bit. And three to four percent, okay, we to get this water out and to cool our body down, we brought water in from there and we pushed it out. Then when we go to five percent, we go, oh crap, like we need to get more water out because we need to cool this body. So we're probably gonna start taking it from inside those cells and we're gonna push it through all those compartments to get it out to cool the body down. Now, the reason we say above 5% we never want to go is because we can't be confident as practitioners just by the way that our body works and the osmotic gradients and the way that there's sodium transporters in our body and all these other things. When we're trying to put water against that gradient, the other way to get it back in, it's not so much a matter of, hey, just drink all this water or slap an IV in and in, in, increase the what we call the fluid volume, which really, let's just say you put an IV in at this end and you pump fluid and you put a lot of fluid into this first little compartment here, you fill up with water, that's great. And then that water is probably going to shift over to that extracellular space that we took water from and we're like, okay, that's fine. But when we want to get into the cells, the way that it gets into the cells, because it has to go what we call against an osmotic gradient, it has to go through these transporters to get there. And the way to do that, the, the biggest limiting factor for that is just time doesn't matter how much fluid you put in over here or how like fast you get it in the way the only way that it's going to get in it just takes time to go through these transporters so this is where the big problem comes is we go okay in 24 hours how confident if we've gone more than this five percent how confident even if we've put all the right amount of fluid electrolyte glucose we've done all the physiology and mass and whatever and we go we've got this great concoction cool but how much time is there for this water to get in? And that's where we're kind of left and we go, crap, I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I'm i not sure. The next best guy isn't sure. The guy that's better than both of us, he's not sure. None of us are really sure that it's going to get it. So in, this, in the sense of 24 hours, that's why we're like, well, let's just, let's just like not do it. Let's just prevent all of that and let's just not risk that and let's just not do 5% fluid cuts or any higher than 5%. So that's that's pretty much why we recommend that. And to get to that point, and then we can like work backwards from that and we go, okay, well, the whole weight cutting process, if we, we start with that, okay, what weight do you have to get in? And then, okay, this is 5% fluid and this is what we do with our, our team when we risk assess is we go, okay, we know we can manipulate fluid in the body in all these other ways. How do we use these lower risk strategies and how do we use diet so we can get the fat down in the body? So if we're starting all the way over here, by the time we get down to here with this water cut, we've only got two, 3% to do. And that to me is like a lot more manageable. It's a lot more safer. It still allows you, if there is going to be a size advantage there, which we can have a whole discussion about that and whether it exists or not. I think I work a lot with very, very high level guys. I think for those guys, I've seen it where it, there probably is going to be an advantage there. Like, so yeah, okay, we have to program that in, but we have to always do it thinking what's the safest way to get this athlete from this point A to point B and maintain their health through that whole process. And and in your opinion, what is the safest way? Is it a matter of uh, dieting early on in the fight camp? Because, I mean, obviously, the, the, the I guess the two train of thoughts are there is the water cut is a short period of time, right? So you deplete really quickly and then you gain really quickly. Um, I mean, obviously, when I had my fight, granted, it was only in amateurs or whatever, I, I took six months to kind of chip away at, at uh, about maybe 400 grams a week, right? Like it was just minimal, um, but the same thing because I didn't want to spend six months just starving myself either, right? So I, I, I just said, you know, like do something 
quite small and, and, and get through it. And it was funny because I was ready to do a water cut um, come, come the weigh-in days, but a day out, I was already two kilos under my allotted weight. So I was like, oh, well, I'm already two, two kilos under now. So I, I had, even though I had the sweatsuit and everything ready, I, I didn't even touch them. Like, it was like, I didn't actually think it would get it that way. But uh, do you find that, um, yeah, like how, what, what do you think the safest way is? Is it to, because I know when, say, Mike Dolce first came about, like all the athletes were saying he's really good because they can eat all the way to the scales. Um so is it is it a case of having you know a good diet and being able to eat all the way through is it about cuz I guess we're we live in this world as well where there's a lot of Dr Google right and a lot of people are like jumping on and finding these weird ways or like macro counting as well and then they they get my fitness pal on on their phone and they start doing all these things and you know no no one really I guess has really spoken about what what the kind of best methods are of of making weight if if that makes sense yeah yeah and i'll um tell you right now dennis it doesn't matter if you're mike dolce doesn't matter if you're geordie sullivan doesn't matter if you're whoever else if we tell you that there's the best way and that we know that's the best way and it's our way we're completely lying to you because we don't know there's so many factors that we don't know about this process and you brought up a really good point there. And I think it's very interesting because this is another conversation. I have this a lot with, um, I'm, I'm involved in this little research project where we're essentially trying to answer that question. What's the best way to go about this? Because I'm very open to the idea that yes, from the outset, from what our team does, we seem very successful. Like we've never had anyone in professional league or whatever, even come close to missing weight. We've done it. I'm not convinced that we're doing it the best way that we can though, because we don't necessarily have all the research that we need in particular areas to make that decision. So you made a good point there where in your fight, you spent six months getting ready to get, get ready for this and get your weight down. Absolutely fine. You see that a lot in bodybuilding where they'll do like a comp at the end of the year, they'll maybe do two comps and they'll have like two, four to six month cycles where they'll just slowly bring down where they're bringing down like 0.25 to point half, like half percent of their body weight. And it's very sustainable. The thing is, is that practically for an MMA fighter, if you're a professional, that's not practical. You can't have, if you this is your living and you need to fight three to four times, you can't spend six months in a camp. And we have this discussion of like a 52-week fight camp. I don't know if anyone who says that has ever like done the training that you have to do when you're in a fight camp or like I encourage you if you're a big proponent of the 52-week fight camp, go hang out with a fighter, do their training session for a week and then do it for eight weeks and tell me you want to do that for 52 weeks of the year. It's just not a thing. But I understand the concept of it. And you get into this really funny situation where, okay, if we want to plan this process, where I, the way I think is go, we plan this process. I go, okay, Dennis, you want to weigh in at 70 kilos. I'm very confident that I can safely take your body through 10% water and like a fluid and salt and glycogen and fiber and everything else. I can manipulate all those things very safely in that you know five to seven days from about 10 percent of your body weight so that puts us at about 77 kilos and then we go okay well where are you at now and you say okay i'm at 83 kilos and you go okay we got six weeks and let's just say okay dennis i want you to get like half a kilo off a week so we're going to give us 12 weeks so like we have 13 weeks and that's fine but it's like and and i can program that and go okay dennis this is how many calories you have this is the amount of carbohydrates you need to have. And I, I can tell the macros after I go on this little spiel because people probably want to hear that. Like this is how much carbs, protein, fat that you need to do that and to achieve that. 
the issue is, is that a lot of the times, like 12 to 13 weeks probably isn't going to be practical. If you're fighting for the UFC, you're probably going to get four to eight weeks notice, eight weeks at best. So these guys are coming in and it's this concept of what we call energy availability. And this is a big issue right now because we don't know whether what's more detrimental to this fighter is it this period where we're cutting this water where there's some research that says all the hormonal imbalances all the bad things that's happened whatever happened this weekend that can all happen in that week then there's another school of thought that says well no we know we can do that pretty safely it's actually what you're doing in this six to seven to eight weeks where you're putting these people in these crazy deficits which you need to put them in in order to get them to wait that's playing up with their hormones. That's really disturbing all of these things. So by the time they get to this fight week, they're in a huge accumulated weekly energy deficit. And there's a good study that shows that after seven weeks that this fighter was in a, a deficit to their body of 110,000 calories. So 110,000 calorie deficit to their body. And that comes across with all these hormonal problems, all of these. So it's, it's an interesting topic to talk about because we haven't quite figured out, okay, Yes, we know we've got this time frame where it's like six to eight weeks where usually that's what we're going to have for a camp. And we don't know. We don't know, do we go really aggressive with this and then kind of put these guys in these gross deficits and then manage it as best as we can and kind of keep them on this teeter and then put them through this safe water cut, I suppose, or weight cutting week. And is that a better approach than say what you said? Then or do we just go blow it out and say, hey, no, you need to like have 12 to 14 to 15 weeks to slowly bring it down so we can keep all these hormones intact and then we can still confidently bring you down if we need to even bring you down in that fight week or you just wake up on weight so we're kind of like in this weird in between right now at least in the world that i live in with the academics and researchers that i work really closely with where we're trying to figure out okay is there like a balance and i think where we're at right now is I think there's a team over at Liverpool, John Moore's run by Dr. Carl Evans, who's probably, I would say, we talk about Mike Dolce and all these other guys. He's probably the smartest person. Him and Dr. Reed Real are probably the two smartest people in this field. And I encourage anyone who's listening to that to go follow those two guys. And I think he's kind of probably got this right, where he's got this fine little balance of the way that they structure their nutrition during the fight camp can preserve these hormonal challenges that these people go through but they can still take them through a decent weight cut. So you preserve their health during that fight camp as best as you can. And then when it comes to their health, when it's that high risk period where we're cutting weight, I think they've probably got the best system at the moment to preserve that as well. But again, it's one of those things we don't know. Let's, let's run some studies. Like this is the thing. We don't have a lot of studies on that. And it's, it's kind of hard to run studies. And for me to go to my old university and say, hey, guys, like I've got this really good idea. I'm going to strip 15% of body weight of this room and a sauna of a 10% and I'm going to check all these hormones. What do you guys think? And they'll say, F off, you psycho. We're never doing that, you know? So let me, so let me ask you, um, do you find that um, it's not a one, one thing fits all? Like, is it really athlete to athlete dependent? Is it sport to sport dependent? Like, you know, and, and then I guess even if you want to break it down even more because you're talking about hormones a lot, um, are weight cuts different and when i say different like in a major way between say males and females yeah absolutely absolutely all of the above it's very sport dependent and we'll go, we'll go through all three we'll go through sport to sport athlete to athlete and differences of sexes sport to sport very different because you have different weigh-in formats with mma we've got a 30 to 36 hour window especially with our ufc guys i know i can push that water cut period a bit more because as I was talking about earlier with the shift and fluid and all that nerdy stuff, 
with 30 to 36 hours, I'm pretty confident even if we cut a bit more water, we have the time to get it back in. I can rehydrate. Amateur boxing, same day weigh-ins, never ever do that. You can't, you, you, if you weigh in and you've got to compete within three to six hours, you've got a lot of issues there where you can't rehydrate effectively. And then if you're cutting carbs or glycogen depleting what we do in that week, are you going to be able to get that back in by the time it comes to comp and get your best performance? You think of like jujitsu, you can go weigh in for jujitsu. I've had comp weigh in for jujitsu and I've cut stupid amounts of weight. And then I walk in and they go, Hey, you're on before I've even sipped water. And you oh man, like I'm a shell of a human. Okay. I guess I'll just go get ragdoll for a while. Like that's a real reality that happens. So you can't be doing that. You can't be cutting water. You can't be cutting glycogen if you want a good performance. So it's very, very sport, sport dependent. And that depends on the weigh-in format, you know, the, the time you have to recover and all of that. Athlete to athlete. And this is a big thing is where we talk about having, you know, clinical competence and being able to recognize these things and being able to read body composition scans and then being able to read blood work and look at a dietary assessment or a medical history assessment and look and go, okay, you know what, like Dennis, for you, it probably is the best situation that we spend a bit more time dieting and coming down slowly because you know what, the second that we go in too deep of this, this energy deficit or low energy availability, you know, your testosterone goes down and you just become a horrible human and I don't want you to get separated from your partner. So I'm not going to do that to you. So we're going to keep you up high and we're going to program a couple extra weeks. And for you, Dennis, we're going to do four weeks extra in your camp and then you're going to wake up on weight where I get you know, your brother Dylan, who goes, okay, well, Dylan, you're actually really good and your body seems to handle this. And for whatever reason, you know, we could talk about that later, you can go into a bit more of a deficit and you can do this a bit more aggressively. And I know from what we've trialed with these fight week strategies, you can cut a lot more water. So for you, we're going to do this approach because that's a lot more appropriate. Your body, your body's physiology seems to be able to support that. And again, I think clinical competence comes with me monitoring both you, Dennis and Dylan, okay, well, that's my theory about that. That's great. But I need to be checking up on bloods. I need to be checking in with you each week. I need to be checking all of these things and monitoring that intervention. How successful was it? Because at the end of the day, I might've got it completely wrong. So that person to person, like individual athlete to athlete is super, super, super important. And like, sure, there's going to be similar similarities. And you see that between weight classes where people come in, especially if they've got similar training schedule and blah, blah, blah. But it is, it's athlete to athlete. And then you add on a layer of that, like what you said before, is the sex differences and females and males. And I always say it is like the best quote I ever heard about this was that you can talk about the, the male reproductive system in a 15 minute coffee break, but it's probably going to take you a year's work to figure out the female. And it's, it's because females are so much more complicated creatures than us simpleton males. You know, they've got to carry on the human, the human uh, genome and we don't. So it's like, even with that, when you've got their cycle, so there's like a whole bunch of things. If they've got a natural menstrual cycle, you have to understand how the hormones fluctuate between that. Not only do you have to understand how the hormones fluctuate, you have to understand the signs and symptoms that come with that natural fluctuation. And then even with that, you're only talking about maybe 50% of the females you're going to work with because the other 50% are going to be on oral contraceptives or some type of contraceptives where they're getting exogenous hormones put in progesterone, estrogen, or a combination of both, which are having effects in their body, which could be causing different signs and symptoms. So on top of all those other assessments and all the other things that you're doing, you need to take into consideration, okay, like Susie's coming in and Susie's periods like this, and she's got a good natural period. But I know at this point when her estrogen goes up or whatever, she gets really bad cramps and water weight goes up and blah, blah, blah. 
and she probably can't do these type of trainings. And I need to program my nutrition for that where I get Susie comes in and she can go through her side and she doesn't notice anything. She's basically like a guy. So it's like, you have to know all of this. And this is where there's two things that clinical competence and, and, and understanding the physiology and understanding the science and understanding all of these things. One is really important and the practical application of all of that and going, okay, how does this fit in in the context of this athlete making weight? Because in the big broad spectrum of all of this, the, the goal for me and my team is like, how do we do all this and maintain and preserve all and keep these guys healthy and safe? So it's like, we need to understand and do all of this. And I think the big problem when it comes into it and guys just say like, oh, like weight cutting, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's not just weight cutting. Like I don't, I don't really like the term weight cutting because it's like, it doesn't encompass all of this. And it's like, that's where I can say, I can sit back and say, Dennis, you come to me and you go, hey, Geordie, like, is this safe for me to make this weight? And it's like, okay, well, this is all the processes we need to go through and I can outline it and we can go through your medical history, your bloods, we can go through your body comp, we can do all of this training, we can do your weight cut history, we can blah, 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 do everything else. And then I can make assessments and go, okay, Dennis, we're weighing in at 70 kilos. And then from all this information you gave me over here, I can make pretty close assumptions to how your body will respond during this fight week and blah, blah, blah. And this is the amount of weight that you're going to lose. And then programming off this, you know, this nutrition system that I've taken from Dr. Carl and his team, I think that I can put you through this and then preserve these systems and go through this. So I'm X percent confident that we can make this weight and this, and this is all the caveats and this is what we've got to look for. And Hey, look, Dennis, in two weeks out, if you don't hit this weight target, I'm going to be very concerned for you. And one week out, you don't hit that target. I don't care what you or your coach saying, I'm pulling this fight and you have to sign this piece of paper and agree with that. So like that, that's the way we work. And it's like this whole, whole encompassing system, but it's like a big system. And I think there's a big problem because I think one education, people don't, aren't really aware of all of that and that you can even do that. And then two, like, I think a lot of, well, some, not a lot, I'd say some coaches, some athletes, some people, they just don't want to know. They don't really care. They're just like, just do it. Just get it done. Get the weight off, eat celery, put hot sauce on it, suck it up and get the weight down. So that's a long-winded answer, but yes, it's very individual. There's a lot of sex differences, and it's very different between the sports. And that, and that's why I respect. Uh, obviously, we'll get onto your blog post soon, but that's what I respected about you. Where, where I read, obviously, that you had basically said no to what we'll get onto. But um, you know, a lot of coaches, nutritionists, whatever, they'll just do it because they're getting paid to do it, right? And they kind of see it yeah. as in, if this fighter doesn't fight, it means I'm not getting it, get paid, and so they'll push it through. At all costs, and 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 to me, that's just crazy. One 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 more thing I did want to ask you about, though. Do you think that? And look, I'm not talking about professionals at the moment. I'm talking about people that are just getting into whatever, you know, combat sports. Do you think too many people concentrate on the scales too much? Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, uh, I know a lot of people when they're getting ready, say even from their for their first amateur fight, they're jumping on the scales every day right and every day and every and, and it becomes like an obsession um and you know and then you'll go for three days where you're like yep 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 and then you'll plateau for a bit and they start to freak out right and they're like oh it's all you know i've hit a brick wall and 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 all of this kind of stuff or even with the macros and stuff like i've had um you know people that literally have been empty shells in the gym and then you're like what have you eaten in the last 24 hours and they're like a protein bar right because yeah, yeah. they were so worried about the carbs they were so worried and and do you do you think people like obsess about numbers too much like 
You know what I mean? Because and and the reason I ask you that is just then you said, look, I'll look at you two weeks out. I'll look at you a week out, and then I'll and and so I'm kind of getting the sense that you're you'd rather see the results from a week to week basis rather than a day to day basis. Yeah, for sure. There's a few good points. Um, there. I think one good thing I'll say straight away. I say this to all my fighters is like cortisol like your stress hormone is good for waking you up in the morning it's not good for you making weight so you being stressed out and freaking out about all this stuff is there's a whole bunch of problems that come when you're like constantly in this high cortisol state chill out and just use that that hormone's good for getting you out of bed and getting you alert in the morning and let's leave it at that type thing but yeah you're completely right people get really fixated on the scales right and that's a big part of our job is that we alleviate a lot of that stress that these guys go through and and you're 100 percent correct in saying that you don't want to be looking at this day to day, your weight fluctuation, you you can fluctuate weight up to 5% during a day, depending on what you eat, the saltiness of the foods, how much fibers in the foods, how dense they are, the carbohydrate content, the type of training that you do, day to day fluctuations, hormones levels, everything, so many different things can fluctuate that hormone, even to the point where it's like, when was the last time that you drank water the night before and then people will be like i woke up heavy and it's like man but you, you had a liter of water in the middle of the night you got up and went to the fridge it's like where do you think you haven't peed it out like you're going to breathe a bit of it out but where do you think it's gone it's in your bladder so it's like yeah we, we use a system where same time every week same day you get up same clothes or lack thereof you know you go pee and do whatever else you need to do in the bathroom but it's consistent week to week because that's where you see it. it's like your body there's too much going on, too much noise day to day, hour to hour to make an assessment. We will get weights like before and after training to assess how much fluid they lost so we can get a better hydration strategy in, in place so they can help their recovery before their next session. But week to week, like I, re- I have guys text me their weights. Like during fight week, it's a little different because the, the game you're playing is a bit different. But during camp, it's like, man, I don't care what your weight is on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. Like, dude, I don't give two shots. It's like, send me it what it is on Tuesday morning once we've had seven days because that's the way your body works. We're not losing glycogen. We're not losing fluid. We're not losing salt. That's not the aim of the game right now. We want to lose body fat and your body fat doesn't change in 24 hours. It's it's a week to week thing where you'll see this process happening. So yeah, you're 100% right. Um, I guess um, if guys are listening and they do want it, like a little bit of a description. Do you want me to like how we program like a bit of nutrition, maybe just to give the guys if, if they're listening? Cause you did say a lot of like they get fixated on the macros and a, a lot of what we do, like I don't give my guys macros. Like I'm some guys I've got like maybe 5% of my clients, they really love macros and they love tracking it in my head. I'm like, well, what are you paying me for? Like, that's my job is to put all that. And like, I just give you a, a, a piece of paper and like I change it every now and then, but that's my job to, to do that. So you don't have to worry about that. If guys are listening and they want to like program their nutrition, a very good um, system that you can use is um, I highly encourage people to Google the Cunningham equation to figure out how much calories they have. So the Cunningham equation, figure out how many calories you have, get a good estimate of what you're burning during like the day. If you get like a step calculator or a watch or something, figure out how much calories you're burning during the day. And then this is all very like not the most accurate things you can do, but it gives you a good idea of your energy output where like a heart rate monitor or whatever a couple of sessions so you can get a better idea of how many calories your body's actually using in a day and it'll probably surprise you by how many you actually are there's there's two methods you can do you can either eat at the number that the Cunningham equation gives you or what i like to do with my guys is i bump it up to so you're at least recovering from those training sessions if you want to program macros 
a very good strategy to use is use 2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass for your protein. And when I say per kilogram fat-free mass, like go get a DEXA scan, get someone with calipers to get an estimate on your body fat. And essentially your fat-free mass is the mass of your body minus the fat that you have in your body. So if you're 77 kilos and you're 10% body fat, that's seven kilos of fat, your fat-free mass would be 70 kilos. So for protein, two to 2.5 grams per kilogram fat-free mass. For your fat, 0.5 to one grams per kilogram fat-free mass. And then whatever, whatever calories you have left over, give them all to carbohydrates. So you figured out like how many calories you need from your Cunningham equation and your energy expenditure and blah, 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 all that stuff. Work out how much protein you need to preserve your muscle and your lean mass. Work how much fat you need to uh, keep your hormonal health and everything else going. And then give the rest to carbohydrates because no matter what combat sport you're doing, wrestling, jujitsu, judo, boxing, kickboxing, MMA, we need a lot of carbs. And you cannot do well at this sport. You cannot have a longevity in this sport if you're not eating carbohydrates. Give all the rest of your calories to carbohydrates and eat them. So that's if, if guys are listening and they're like, oh man, I want to I want to get an idea about my macros. That's what I would recommend and what I would call is pretty close to a gold standard to what we have in combat sports nutrition right now. And it's crazy you say that because I have seen a lot of people take the no carb diet. So it's it's crazy that you actually promote the fact that you should be taking carbs because as I say, I've, I've seen literally, and once again, it's the same thing. Like I see them and they're a shell in the gym. And, and you're like, what is going on? And it's like, oh, I'm on this new diet. And, and, the, and the, the funny thing as well is I, I think people don't give, um, once again, they want to see instant results, right? So they don't mm. give enough time. I had, I had a guy, for instance, he, he started a new diet on the Monday. It wasn't working by the Wednesday, so he flipped it and he went to another diet, you know, and then that wasn't working by the Friday, so he comes in the next Monday with another diet. So he went everything from, as I say, carb-free to the paleo to a keto to, and I was like, mate, you have to just give it a, like, we, and I don't promote any diet, like, because as I say, like, I, I guess they all kind of work in some roundabout way, but you've got to at least give them a chance to work, right? Like, and it's funny that yeah, people expect that, that, that result right now. Like, I've been on it for two days. Why am I, you know, feeling the difference? So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a weird one. And, and I know with the professionals, they've kind of got a grip on it all. Um, and, and that's why I, I bring it back to the amateurs because, you know, I, I kind of call it as well like the stock exchange, right? If you're a first-time trader and you put some money down on the stock exchange and, the first 24 hours it dips down all of a sudden you're like oh my god you know and then after a while you go yeah. you know what I'll, I'll check my stocks in a week or even a month you know like i'm not worried about these because you know that the stocks are going to do this every yeah, every yeah. minute yeah. every second so but look the let, let's let's get on to the i guess the elephant in the room as well um the the reason i really wanted to talk to you about is as i said um you wrote a blog post, uh, which I suggest that people will go check out and I'll put a link in, in the description and everything. Um, over this past week, we obviously had a little bit of a mishap. Um, you know, uh, we had a female fighter uh, for her debut fight. Um, in the post you do mention, she was originally one of your clients. Um, you had obviously, and, and as I say, that's why I do respect you, you had suggested, no, don't do this because you weren't confident in the weight. Uh, or the weight cut or, or the time that she had to cut the weight. I don't, I don't know. The, I mean, you could probably talk more on that. Um, 
And obviously that led to a whole kind of circus of events, right, that, that followed afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can, can you kind of delve into the, the I, I guess, what you wrote in your blog, um, but like, yeah, just speak on it a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to say it's like in the position I'm in, like I'm not in the position to point fingers and point at this person and say, you did this wrong or point at that person, you did this wrong. It's it's not really the point. I guess the whole point of the blog post was kind of to um, highlight a bigger issue that's at hand, especially within the weight cutting world. And that's clinical incompetence and gross misinformation that exists around the, around the place. And what happens when when they are prevalent is not good is these bad things happen is when you get people or practitioners or whatever you want to call them where they don't have those two things they don't have the correct information and they don't have the clinical competence they put people's lives at risk because this process of everything that i just spoke about even if you do it i think we do it pretty well like there's there's a lot of ways and there's a lot of teams that around the world that i work with closely and i think they do it pretty well as well but none of us do it perfectly. I don't think there's a way to do this perfectly. The way that we do it well is through risk management. It is through everything that I just spoke about is that you assess the person's physiology, you assess this, and at every step of that, you're going, okay, well, what impact is this having on this person's health and safety? What impact is this having on the next fight and the next fight and the next fight after this? So you need to put it in that context of like, yes, this is inherently unsafe, but there's certain steps we can go through as professionals and we can lean on our professional knowledge and our clinical competence and our clinical training to manage these risks. And I think the whole episode that happened on this is just a really good example of what happens when you don't do that. And and it's a real risk. And I think, and I think we are partly to blame for this because the way we are on social media is that we put this out and I think people get a bit comfortable with it and they go, Hey, look like TFD, like, Geordie, Jack, Ryan, all these guys, man, they're taking these guys through these really cool cuts and look how simple they do. And it's like, yes, there's a lot of behind the scenes, like what I spoke about that goes on with that. Like we might be getting these guys down the way, but at at the end of the day, we have team like weekly team meetings and we're bringing up high risk cages. We, We put our guys into green, orange and red zones. And we, if anyone is in like an orange zone or higher, we talk about them every week. We're on a weekly meeting. We're going, okay, what are we doing this week to manage these guys? And what are we doing to keep them safe and blah, blah, blah. So I guess for this story, I guess what I wanted to get across with it is that I don't really want to point fingers and say this person really stuffed up or this person really stuffed up or this athlete didn't listen to us and they didn't. It's not really the point. The point I wanted to get across is that unless we do something and we kind of put these practices in place or we do those two things is where we increase education around this and we do you know more things like this where we talk to coaches and athletes and commissions and other things and we talk about the different processes that are evolved in a you know like a universal assessment tool that we can use for coaches like if Dennis you get a fighter or something and you can go okay I'll put them through this assessment piece and okay you know what when you've gone through this no you can't actually make that weight on three weeks notice we need to be highlighting those things and and starting that conversation and going okay we need better education and then we need better like practical application of this and we need to kind of stamp out this clinical incompetence because it's kind of everywhere. And this is another thing. And the reason I wanted to write this article is because this is not like the first time it's happened. Like a few weeks ago, I had one of my very good, very good friends, like a good friend of mine. And he's a, he's a client of mine, still a current client, but he has a huge gym, you know, has hundreds of fighters under him. And he called me, he went, man, like this girl's not in a good spot. She's in the sauna. She's been in here for like 
24 hours she's just sweating like she's in and out of consciousness it's just i was like what the what the heck and then spoke through it and then she's working with one of these weight cut specialists who have done you know like a three-day course on this and again I'm, i'm not pointing the finger and saying like power to you if you want to change your career and you want to you know go down the nutrition pathway and you want to empower people and you want to help them and you want them to be the best version of themselves i completely get that. that's why i'm in nutrition i completely get that the thing is is when you want to apply that concept into the weight making sports or weight category sports where athletes manipulate their physiology they manipulate their body composition to get down to weight there are inherent risks that are involved and you have to have a certain level of education certain level of training a certain degree of clinical competence to be able to assess those risks manage them and then monitor them and that's not something you're learning in a three-day course because the really sad thing and i think this is the really sad thing and this is something that me and my team we had a meeting we spoke about this is that anyone in our team we could be in the other position we could be on the other side of that coin where it's us they're getting to it. we've taken someone through this and it's one of our athletes that is you know ended up in er we put a lot of measures in place so that doesn't happen but the thing is is like not everyone has those measures to put in place or and, and the worst part about it is that ignorance is bliss that's that's what i think the worst part is ignorance is bliss is because when you do these short courses, you learn all the fun things, you learn all the cool things. Yes, like cutting weight isn't necessarily rocket science. Like really any person off the street can cut water, can cut carbs, can cut salt, can run in a sauna suit. What they don't teach you is the other side of that. What happens when all that goes wrong? What happens, you know, when your fluid volume depleted? What happens when you get cardiac arrest? Who do you call? What position do you put that body in? They go into a seizure. What happens? You don't get taught all of that in these like three-day courses. And so it's that risk management. And then the really sad thing about it is that what's probably going to happen is one or two people in this whole situation are probably going to get a pretty hefty lawsuit to them. And while their intentions were very good and they were just trying to help someone, this could very well be the start of a very, very bad chapter in their lives where they're going to, you know, be in a very dark place and all because they made a couple of bad decisions. And like, again, I'm not the one that I don't want to point at them. I think there's probably been a bit of unnecessary finger pointing on the social media for these guys and whatnot. And I think that, yes, they made a bad decision, but I think it's not about pointing the finger and saying this person did that wrong. This did this. I think it's a gross over encompassing problem that we need to like really as a community sit down and go, okay, well, the reality is, is that this is going to continue to happen as long as there's misinformation out there and clinical incompetence with practitioners. So how do we fix that? We go around and we provide better education and we stamp down on these three-day courses where people think they're qualified to be taking someone through this and manipulating people's physiology. So I guess that was the whole basis behind writing the blog. Look, and and, and the one thing I respect, because when it first happened, I was one of those people that was just like pure negligence. I was, I was like... I can't believe this has happened, right? And and I don't I don't personally know the athlete. I know that she's been a follower of the podcast, and we've spoken on on a social kind of vibe. Um, but the story brought me to to tears. Like it, it it was it was absolutely upsetting, and 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 the reason being, as I say, is I already know how much these athletes go through, um, and I just felt that she got guided in the wrong way. Over the, over the week, though, I've had time to think about it too because, you know, at the beginning, you're, you're 
obviously your your emotions run high, right? And and it was more of a headhunting campaign as well. And the one thing I liked about your your article as well is you don't we're not naming any names, right? We we just keep it as in athlete A and a few other people, right? Um, but since then, I, I've kind of gone look. The professionals can't take all the blame either, right? Um, or, or the so-called professionals, or as you like to call them, the biohackers, right? Um, and, 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 and the reason being is now that I've had time to cool down and, and, and think about it, I was like, was there something? And this isn't throwing you under the bus either, but I was kind of like, was there something you could have done? Um, because it started with you, right? And, and I say that in the sense of she was one of your clients. You told her, we're not, we're not taking this. Um, obviously, she left. Uh, and then I think, imagine you said, look, we will try to help you get down to this weight and say, you know, she was at weigh-in, overheating. At least you wouldn't have made the call to go cool off, so to speak, right? So I, I feel like there was a chance there for you but I also understand your morals there. You didn't think it could be done safely, but by that, she's obviously gone somewhere else. And that, that to me became the second problem because it's the same as like when you see medical practitioners, right? You go into a doctor's office, you go, can I get some Xanax? Nine, nine, ten, uh, nine times out of 10, a doctor's going to go, no. But mm-hmm. if you ask enough doctors, you're going to find the one that says, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll paint you a script. So, Therefore, I go, a little bit of the blame goes towards her now because she had a professional's advice. They said it wouldn't be safe to do so. So she went and sourced another person to get advice from, right? Um, Knowing that a professional has said, look, don't do this, right? So a little bit goes on to her there as well, I find. Um, And then, obviously, majority of the blame I I, I, I still feel goes to these other professionals um and the reason being is just like i i don't know like to me it was just one to to put her in 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 the the cryo chamber when you're dehydrated i thought and and i'm not a specialist but i thought that's kind of crazy and all the times that i've had to deal with these chambers uh, and usually i've seen it happen over in vegas is you know if it's your first time they'll usually start you know, around the 90-second mark, maybe even a little less, um, you know, and, and gradually mm-hmm. they'll, they'll work up, but they max out at three minutes. They, they really make a hard stance on three minutes. Um, and the fact that she got put in there for six minutes, uh, to me, just kind of, like, made me feel like... I, I, I kind of feel like her injuries were frostbite, is what I'm probably thinking. I, I, like, I don't know, because I, as I said, I haven't really spoken to her, but it kind of feels like... Yeah, you were in sub-zero temperatures for for an extended period of time. You've you've literally got frostbite now, but that's just a guess. As I said, like I'm I'm not claiming I know what's going on there. Um, and then obviously when when it all went down, I looked at a couple of these YouTube videos, you know, and the one the one that got me is he he literally went. These are the benefits of a cryo chamber, and he's got a client in there, and and. While, while this girl is freezing away in there, he's like, oh, yeah, I read an article yesterday that some rugby team did it. And I'm like, your video on how this is beneficial to you is this girl freezing while you're just saying, oh, I read an article yesterday that some rugby team did it. Like, and I was like, damn, what, what is going on here? But um, 
where in in your professional opinion where where do you think it all went wrong like yeah yeah that's an awesome question and it's a good it's a, and it's a very fair assessment so um we actually had a team meeting about this on monday night to kind of debrief and go over with the guys because you're completely right and, and as i said in the article it was probably that whole process kind of led me to one of the most regretful I told you so's I've ever had to give in my, not that I said that to, to the athlete in my career because the system we put in place, and I put this in place let back me, in me, July. Let, let me, and, hang and on, was, hang on. Let me ask you this real quick. When, when you say I told you so, when it mm -hmm. all went down, was it more of an I told you so or was it more of a damn we should have tried to help her even though it would have gone against our moral fibres? No. Nah. No, it wasn't uh, we should have tried to help her because the thing is, Dennis, with this and as part of being a professional, something that this sport needs is that we need clear cutoffs. We need clear cutoffs. And the system that we've put in place and that I've got with my team and that, you know, the UFCPI use and that the guys at John Moore's use, all the guys that do this, you need to have a system because if you leave athletes to their own devices, they'll push the limits. So we need to very clearly put in place where, okay, this is a go-ahead you're at risk and this is high risk and once you hit this point it's a solid no and so where those numbers came in and it wasn't even me that did the assessment it's one of my guys and i'll shout out to him jack jack doherty is is picked this up and prevented probably i think that system that we use will probably if it gets out save a lot more athletes because what we need to do now and the good thing about that is to highlight these cutoffs and say okay this issue happened, yes, because you left it too late. You didn't have enough time to do this. And we had the system, like I said, green, orange, red. You hit that red zone where she was, that's our cutoff. Sorry, athlete A, professionally, we advise you against this. We can, as professionals, we offer up all this data and we say, okay, athlete A, these are the reasons why we think this isn't the best in the interest of your health, in the interest of your performance, both in these are all the reasons. At the end of the day, we you, you are paying us to give our professional opinion. This is what we think. Okay, athlete takes that information and says, thanks, no thanks, I'm going to go with someone. We say, okay, we advise against doing that because of these reasons, but we will do a professional handover and your duty of care is no longer with us. We pass it on to this person and we'll give this person whatever info they need if they need to reach out to us and we have like a Passover and handover system where we go, okay, do this and then it's like, okay, as a professional within liability, I can't continue giving you advice because your duty of care is with this person. So yes, in that sense, a portion of the blame needs to go onto her and as an athlete, but then we need to go and look at this and go, okay, what are the factors that influenced her to take probably, and I, without being boastful, one of the top teams who do this around the world, I would say, and probably have probably systems that I've developed from, you know, Clint Wattenberg and, Reed Real, who do this with the best fighters at the UFC, and John Moores, Carl Evans, James Morton, guys that I've used them as my mentors to develop this system. What are the reasons and the factors that have for us to give us that advice and say, this is probably the most sound advice you can get? Why do you choose to ignore that? And, and what are the things that are influencing that decision? And that's where we come to this whole conversation of it's the culture and the environment that surrounds this process. And we go, okay. I've worked with you for a long time. You know, I know what I'm talking. I know you know that I know what I'm talking about. So why is it that you feel the need that to ignore that? Is it 
are there coaches putting pressure on you to take this fight? Do you have this own constructed idea in your own mind that you need to take this fight on short notice? Is it a culture within the gym that you're fighting out of? Is it a bigger culture within, you know, MMA within Australia? What is it that you felt the need? Okay, I need to take this fight and I need to put, you know, ignore all this data and I need to put my health at risk and do this. So that to me is like, okay, well, there's issues there we probably need to dive into. And yes, like, yes, there is blame there, but it's like, okay, yes, that, that is one portion of it, but what are the factors that are that are driving that? And then we go, okay, well, then that like leads into like, what's the psychological issues driving this? Is there something else that's going on that like, I don't know. I always say for it's very hard to do like psychological profiles and, and whatnot of people who actively and willingly want to go into a cage and get punched and kicked and, and put their body at risk, you know? So it's like inherently fighters are going to be high risk takers. So it's like, we have to consider that. So it kind of all dives back in. It's like, to what I was saying, we need to develop a system, which our team has a system where we have these clear cutoffs, but it's a, it's a wider problem. There's an environmental problem. There's a cultural problem there's a psychological problem that we need to consider that these guys are very high risk taking athletes. There's a culture within gyms of, okay, you take a fight, you're a wuss, you're a pussy. If you don't take that fight, you just make the weight. That's what fighters do. There's that. And then maybe there's pressure from teammates. Oh, I've made that weight in this short amount of time. So you can do it too. Coaches, be it same thing. Coaches, okay, like you've got to fight. Like you haven't fought, you need to be more active, blah, blah, blah. So there's all those issues. And because, and I'll, and I'll pat Jack on the back and I and I, I back him. Like I back his call when he was like, you know what? I don't think this is safe. And that, and he was just following the system that we put in place. And we put that system in place to keep these guys safe. And I think this is an important point that my coach said, and he said this to me when I was chatting to him this morning about it. He goes, well, we've kind of given people from this level of qualification have given this. And like you said, if you get nine doctors that say no, you'll find one that says yes what's the responsibility of that person that said yes? And that's where we come in and we go, okay, well, maybe we need a better system to distinguish this. Maybe we just need all the doctors playing on the same field. Maybe we need to let the athletes, like there needs to be a better system where athletes can clearly distinguish. Does this doctor, you know, the nine doctors that said yes, what are their qualifications and why are they saying, or said no, what are they doing? And then who's this guy that said yes? Like how do I even figure out the difference between these two schools? Because it's a bit of a it's a bit of a free for all right now. No one really knows. And and I guess like the the other thing is with the doctor's situation is that you know you can lose your doctor's license. I'm not sure like if being a dietitian, if yeah. you actually have to have a license and you're risking losing your 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 license, yeah. which which obviously the doctors go through. But like, do you do you find that potentially what we were saying right at the beginning with with amateurs weighing in on the day of? Do you, do you think something like that, or do you think that's risky as well? Like do you? Do you because obviously the pros, after time, as a pro, you kind of find what works for you and you can do it more easily as well, right? But mm. say in this case, it was an amateur fight. Like it wasn't even a debut. It was an amateur fight. Like do you, do you find that there should be more restrictions in place for the amateurs when it comes to, say, weight cutting? Or, or should it be like uh, you mentioned at the beginning, like uh, I think you said with boxing where – you know, if you're if you're a pro, it's the day before. But if you're uh, an amateur, you've got to do weigh-ins on the day of to try to minimize these hard cuts. I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right, Dennis. Like amateurs, in my opinion, should not be cutting weight because the idea of cutting weight is to get some type of advantage over your opponent. And when you're an amateur, 
the skill difference is too, the, the disparity is too large. So whatever supposed advantage you're getting by cutting weight probably does not exist. When we get up to like the Israel Adesanya's, the Alexander Volkanovsky's, the Dan Hooker's, Brad Riddell's, those guys, that could be the difference between you winning or losing a fight and making 50 grand or 100 grand and then re-signing a four-fight contract, which is for 150 grand. That, that's big time. That's stuff where you need to consider it. Amateurs, it, what's the point? You're not getting paid. Like you, you're still learning this sport. It takes a lot of the fun out of the sport. Like, I, I, like you said, you dieted. Like cutting weight isn't fun. Like you become a miserable human when you do it. Even when you do it right, if you do a drastic cut, it's not fun. It takes the fun out of the sport. I understand to an extent where like the psychological process and you want to go through that. And it's like, oh, this I went through more than what this guy, I get that. But it's like, you're an amateur. You're not getting paid for it. And it's like, if you do want to eventually get paid for doing this, you need to do two things. You need to get your skills up and you need to put time in. And then cutting weight can, can inherently risk both of them. You can de- be detrimental to both of them just by cutting weight. So I think you're right. Amateurs, I think, same day weigh-ins or even two hour weigh-ins is, is a good regulation to put in it gets a bit more complicated with the professionals and this is a this is a funny conversation we have and i'll put the question to you dennis if if i said to you hey dennis i'll give you thirty thousand dollars for you to lose ten percent of your kidney one kidney you only lose ten percent functioning would you take thirty thousand dollars i think it's at least worth 50 but yeah, but you know what I mean. Where it's like I, I, I might get a fight of the night bonus, so there's there's my yeah, fifty. Yeah. So maybe I'll do it. So so I think for a lot of people, when you think like these professional fighters, where they're like it's all they've done and they haven't like if you if you come from that aspect of hey man, this isn't good for your health, and you say hey man, like you're going to lose ten percent function, which I've seen happen in my practice. They're like I don't care, like who cares, man? This is my whole life. I need the money. Like I need to do this. Like this is what I've dedicated. So it gets a lot more complicated when you get up to the professionals and it's the million dollar question right now like what do we do what do we do with this issue to encompass everything like yes i can put in a system and i could send that out to every commission in australia new zealand and get it to every gym and coach and i could give them our assessment and i could break it down so they could very easily do a flow chart and go yes no this person but it doesn't encompass all the other issues the cultural issues of the gym the cultural like influence of the coaches teammates the psychological issues of like fighters just being inherently high risk athletes. So it's a million dollar question. And I don't necessarily know that rules and regulation are the answer. I kind of had this um, discussion with a colleague this morning about a comment on Twitter where this person was like, you're kidding if you think like education is just going to be the answer. Like you need rules and regulation. And where I'm sitting from as a practitioner, amateurs, it's a different story. Just don't do it. But when you're with pros, like I think a great example is like one championship hydration. Like I I know how to cheat it. It, It's simple physiology. I know how to cheat it. The aim of the game for me is to get my athlete in the best position. If they win, they make money. If they make more money, I make more money. That's just how this game works. And so I know how to manipulate the physiology to keep them safe, but to cheat that test. And it's legal. It's a legal cheating. You put in any other law. If you put in that 15% California State Athletic Commission where you can't win, I'll figure out a way to get around that where I can give my athlete a better advantage over his athlete because he's going to make more money than I'm going to make more money. Like that's the reality of elite level sports. So when people are like, you know what, like it's rules, it's regulations, I get a bit skeptical because I think, well, that sounds like a very like person who sits behind a desk and doesn't do this with athletes because that's not the name of the game. Where I honestly think, and this is a big, big driving focus and a big thing that I'm about, especially 
because we're in the very fortunate position where we work with people like Israel Adesanya, where we work with people like Alexander Volkanovsky, Arling Blenkow, Josh Kulbeck, all these very high-level guys, I think buy-in and almost changing people's attitude towards it is probably going to be our best bet about making a significant change. And I say that not like tooting a horn too much, but you almost want to make it cool not to cut weight. And the reason I push so much on social media and I get these high-level guys to do it is because I want the Israels, the Alex Volkanovskis, the Josh Kulabows, the Arlenes, the Jamie Malarkey, the Brad Riddells. I want them at the top showing everyone, hey, you don't need to be doing this to succeed. You don't need to be cutting a lot of weight. And then that has a trickle-down effect and everyone in the combat sports world sees that and they go, hey, what? Volkanovski doesn't cut a lot of weight and he's the UFC featherweight world champion. Brad Riddell is the biggest prospect coming out of New Zealand and he doesn't cut a lot of weight. Like, why am I doing this? So I think it's like, it's a combination of education, but you've got to get the overall buy-in of the community and almost make it cool and almost like make it to a point where people will question you. If, oh, I'm going to do a big weight cut. Man, why are you doing that? Like, don't you know, like Israel doesn't do that. Alex doesn't do that. Arlene doesn't do that. Why the heck would you do that? And I think that, and I think that's where we're at for the next, you know, year, 18 months, because this game can change in, in flick of a flick of a light. So I think we're in the very fortunate position right now as a company and as a team where we've got all these guys there, we could probably use them as poster boys to probably make a bit of significant change or a lot of significant change in this community by spreading out these messages and really pumping them home. And hopefully, you know, this situation that we saw on the weekend is the last time we see something like that. But like I said, it's a complex issue with, it's the million dollar answer. Like who's got the, who's got the million dollar answer? That's, that's the big question. Well, it's kind of weird. Cause I honestly, I was surprised that none of the actual networks picked it up. Like I thought this should be major news. I honestly thought like, you know, to, to have that happen, I was like, how's this not on Channel 7, Channel 9, like on the on, on the 6 o'clock news? I really had no idea. But look, I know you're busy and I know you've got another meeting to get to. So I'm just going to ask you one more thing. For someone that's looking to, to cut weight or dietitian or whatever, what is your advice to, to someone, A, what they should be looking out for and what are some of the red, red flags? Yeah, um, I think if you're an athlete and you're looking to do it, I think do your research and, and understand your body. I think collect data on your body and it, there's a lot of good readings. Like we put up a lot of good um, information and I, I don't want to give like a selfish plug to my podcast, but the whole reason I created like the fight science podcast was for that very reason. So we could just have a big hub of information where there's people, you know, everyday athletes could just go and they could listen to credible people who have real degrees and have real knowledge and real experience and, real understanding of human physiology and they can read their background and they can listen to that. So I would highly encourage go to the fight science podcast as we were like 70, 80 episodes of just talking about this stuff, do your reading, understand your own body. And if you're going to work with a practitioner, there's a lot of good, like I'm, I'm kind of making it sound very negative. There's lots of good people who do this around the world, reach out to them. A lot of them do this for the very reason we do this. Like we run a, I run a private company. So yes, there's profits and blah, blah, blah and everything. And there's all that business side of it. A lot of people who are very good at this, say Dr. Carl Evans, they're researchers and they've got a very good paying job. They just want to see this change for the better. So if you drop Dr. Carl a message, he'll reply 10 times out of 10, he'll reply. At the end of that blog article, I put a big list of names, a big list of names. Like I said, misinformation is a really bad thing. 
go follow all of those people on social media. And if you've got questions, ask them, send them a DM. They, I guarantee you 95% of them will reply. And if the 5% don't reply, it's just they're busy and they will get back to you. I think some red flags is if there's a, I hate, and again, I don't like bagging these people out, but weight cut specialist, if you see that red flag, combat sports specialist or whatever, that's, it's not a thing. Like, it's just not a thing. Like you don't go to university and major in combat sports, weight cutting. Someone has just manipulated and is taking advantage of an interest in that group. And they're making money off by flicking off a three day cert like certification. So I would say best advice is, is, Educate yourself, educate yourself, get to know your body and ask questions from people who are adequately qualified to give you a good answer. Well, there you have it. So, uh, look, just before I, I, I get you out of here, because um, as I said, I know you're really busy and uh, I know you, we've probably got about five minutes before you've got your next client or your next meeting. So, um, for people that want to maybe reach out to you to, to get a little bit more info or they want to come across your blog posts or whatever, what, what's the best way of uh, people a, either getting in touch with you or, or getting to, uh, as I say, the materials that you put out? Yeah, yeah. So um, on Instagram, we're pretty active. So uh, the underscore fight dietitian is our, our main one. We've got two other guys on the team as well. They've got Jack Doherty, who's at, he's at the combat dietitian. And then we've got Ryan, who's the dojo dietitian. So he does a lot of our grappling athletes. So you can also find us on Facebook, the fight dietitian as well. We're on Twitter. I don't really like getting on Twitter because it's a very mean and nasty world. Or you can just drop us an email at info at thefightdietitian.com. Or if you're looking to kind of get into the education and you want to jump in, you know, really deep into that stuff, go to uh, Spotify, go to the the Apple podcast and type in The Fight Science Podcast. There's about, I think, 75 or something episodes like that where we break down every aspect that I was talking about there. We try to make it as easy to digest as possible. There's There's some episodes that are really deep in the science and some that's not, but Highly encourage if you're interested in all of this stuff to go start there and start getting educated about it. Mate, I can't thank you enough. Um, as I said, I could probably, if it was me, I could probably spend another couple of hours just picking your brain because it, it is a topic that I find very interesting and I'm the first to admit that I'm no pro at it, but I, I, I do really want to delve into it. But uh, on that note, I, I know you've got to go, so I'm going to let you go. Um, I will put a couple of links in the description of this podcast. Um, I'll also leave a uh, link to a GoFundMe page, which is obviously to try to raise some funds for the athlete that we were talking about. Um, once again, appreciate your time, and uh, I hope to get you on another time. Hopefully it'll be under better circumstances, but uh, until then, we'll call it a day. I'm away. I'm away.